on what Wallace is like through our live stream, thank you. On behalf of our church family, we're grateful that you've joined us. We are preaching through a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Peter. It is called 1 Peter, towards the back of your New Testament. Our scripture verses this morning are 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. And a little spoiler alert, I'm going to take two sermons to cover this text. You'll hear a phrase that I read, spiritual sacrifices in the text, and I will do that, uh, cover that phrase in a subsequent sermon. So here's our text this morning, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Well, you may be wondering, what is God doing during our time of no corporate gatherings, when we don't have the privilege and pleasure of seeing each other, hearing each other sing, sending off our kiddos to their classes, handshakes, hugs, face-to-face time. What is God doing? The answer is the same thing he's always doing. From the time Peter wrote to the present and every era in between, God says to his precious people, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is God doing? He's always been doing. He's building his spiritual house. And God doesn't need bricks and mortar, physical buildings, to do that. In fact, it's highly unlikely any of the churches to whom Peter wrote in the first century had their own physical structures. Peter says God does his work with living stones. You and me, living stones. If Peter stood on our midst before we were scattered during the time of coronavirus, he'd have looked around and said, look at you lovely stones, living stones, beautiful stones. Quite a statement from a man whose name Jesus changed from Cephas, pebble, to Petros, rock. This text shows us that two things happen as God builds his new temple. Number one, Christ is received as the living stone, an honor for believers. 
And number two, Christ is rejected as the rock of offense, doomed for unbelievers. So at one and the same time, you feel the soberness of this text, joy, wonder, on the one hand, honor for believers, but a heavy, a heaviness rejecting Christ, doomed for unbelievers. So I just want to acknowledge from the outset that the text brings our hearts sobriety, weightiness, seriousness, as every scripture text should. So let's take, take these in order. As God builds his new spiritual temple, he's always been doing this, still doing this. Number one, Christ is received as the living stone what Peter calls an honor for believers. So Jesus, uh, excuse me, Peter calls followers of Jesus living stones. Why? Well, the short answer is because when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are united to him so that what is true of him is true of you. And Jesus Christ is the living stone, the risen, resurrected living Savior of the world, the rock of our salvation, the living cornerstone of his spiritual house. And if you're joined to him, that makes you too a living stone. Now that may seem strange to you. How can stones be living? So some background would be helpful. Clearly in this text, Peter is envisioning the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was the physical masterpiece of Judaism. And clearly Peter had seen the temple. It's unlikely those to whom he writes had made the long journey from where they lived to Jerusalem. We have never seen it, but we read about it in the Bible. And you get this affirmation over and over again that where the temple was, Mount Zion, was the absolute most stunning thing in all of the earth, Psalm 48. His holy mountain, the joy of all the earth, Psalm 50, verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. So without question, the temple represents kind of the permanence, the beauty, the stability, the glory of the nation of Israel. In fact, as you read through the Bible, you realize that the, the, the truth that is represented or symbolized in the temple is a two-sided coin. On the one hand, the temple symbolizes that God longs to dwell with his people. He's a communal God. He wants to commune, to be with his people. And on the flip side, the temple communicates or symbolizes that we must come to God on his terms, not our own. So when you see or read about temple, think, oh, emblematic of God's desire to be with his people. And oh, but to come to this God, we must come on his terms, not our own. Before the first temple was built by David's son Solomon, hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Christ, the temple of Jesus' time was the temple Herod was building, God made his presence known with his people in a portable tent. 
called the tabernacle. It was the place God revealed his presence to his people. It was unmistakable. He would come down in a glory cloud. They knew God was there. And the temple represented the very core commitment of God in the covenant, the agreement, the binding relationship God made with his people, summed up this way. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst forever. But the tabernacle showed all of Israel the fact that God was holy, God was unapproachable, and because we are sinful and unholy, we just can't waltz into the presence of God. There is always a distance between God's dwelling and his people. That was actually established when God had to remove Adam and Eve from the tabernacle, as it were, of Eden. When they sinned against God, they were kicked from, away from God's presence, the way back in, being protected by angels with flaming swords. If you come in here, you'll be consumed. So the tabernacle and the temple after it conveyed that there was a place where God dwelt, what we call the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies, and you just couldn't go in there. You would be, your sin would be consumed by a holy God. In fact, Hebrews 12 tells us that God is a consuming fire, a, re, a reminder that we who are sinful can't just make a claim on the very presence of a holy God. So God ordained one special means of entrance into the Holy of Holies. Once a year, the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement. He would offer sacrifice for the sins of his people, sprinkling blood, the blood of sacrificed unblemished animals on that holy place. And Peter's drawing on these images, and he's showing that God never intended the temple to be permanent. It was a temporary arrangement until Christ came. Peter is showing this is no longer the way to know God. There's something far more beautiful, far more stellar than this building that sat on Mount Zion. And actually, to make sure we got the point in 70 AD, God providentially had the temple of Jesus' day destroyed by the Roman, uh, 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 Roman general Titus in 70 AD. Now that Christ is here, the dwelling of God is Jesus. He fulfills the Old Testament image of the temple. In him dwells bodily all the fullness of God. Jesus reveals the glory of God. Jesus is the word made flesh, John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel, who tabernacled among us full of grace and truth. The passage Jamie read earlier about Jesus cleansing the temple, he said in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This he spoke of his body. Jesus now is the temple. And so this is why Peter portrays the coming of Christ as God laying the first stone of a spiritual temple in verse 6, quoting Isaiah 28. Behold, I'm laying on Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This cornerstone, the first stone in a foundation, had to be true. It had to be perfect so that every line that went out from it up and over would correspondingly be true. If it wasn't perfect, the whole building would be tilted in one way or another. And God says, here's my cornerstone, true Jesus Christ, utterly and perfectly righteous. Jesus chosen of his Father to come and be the foundation of the new temple of his people. Precious, the very 
beloved Son of God. Christ would be the true eternal temple and all who believed in him, God would build into his spiritual house. This is one reason why Paul uses the image of a house or a temple as he talks about the church in Ephesians 2. Jews and Gentiles, he says in Ephesians 2.21, are a holy temple in the Lord, the dwelling of God in the Spirit, consistent with Peter and exactly what the Lord Jesus said was going to come to pass. So if you believe in Jesus, the living, resurrected Savior, all this is true of you. That's why Peter writes in verse 4, as you come to him, the idea of coming is a present tense. You're continually coming. You're drawing near. You're coming, you're coming near to hear him, to worship him. As you come to him, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. That's a passive verb, built up. God is building it. We're not building anything. God is using us living stones to build his precious spiritual house. So, envision the temple somehow in all its glory and envisioning us, the church. The temple, dead stones. We're living stones. The temple, a veil keeping unholy people from the presence of God. We have bold access to the presence of God. The temple, priests operating and once a year only going into that holy place. We, in union with Jesus Christ, our priest, we also are priests with full access to the holy place. The temple, animal sacrifice that could never remove the guilt of sin. We, a temple in Jesus Christ, because his blood once for all was shed for us to make us clean and acceptable for the presence of God. The temple, yeah, from time to time, the glory would descend. It hadn't descended in over 400 years on that particular temple. And, and uh, now we are the ones indwelt by the spirit of glory himself. No wonder Peter says, this is an honor for you who believe in sad contrast those in Jesus day were offended by him anticipated in Psalm 18 118 excuse me and Isaiah 8 Peter quotes conflating those two the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense the builders are in all likelihood the Jewish leaders they should have welcomed their Messiah. Instead, they crucified him. They sought to silence him. They sought to take this precious stone and cast it off, throw it in the garbage heap. Christ was crucified on a garbage heap. They sought to silence him, but he still speaks. What does Jesus say from his cross that is so offensive? Jesus says, I'm being rejected so you can be accepted. Jesus says from his cross, I'm dying the death you deserve so you can have the life you don't deserve. God's way of gathering sinful people into a spiritual house is through grace and mercy offered through the death, the sacrificial death of his son. Therefore, are you the type of person who knows you need mercy? You plead with God, don't give me what I deserve. You know you need grace. Give me what I don't deserve. Life, forgiveness, salvation, righteousness. You know you deserve the death Jesus died. You are cut to the quick in your unworthiness. You know Jesus is the only safe way to access God. He was torn to open up the way to God safely. 
That's what Jesus still speaks from the cross. It's the good news. He makes us completely acceptable to God. So you could put it this way. As you think about where the Old Testament is going, Peter says it lands right here. The superior priest in the superior temple of his own body offers a superior sacrifice for sins to make you perfect once and for all and for all time. That's Jesus. And those who believe in him are not disappointed. They're not to put to shame. They find in Jesus all that is necessary for a relationship with God. Jesus is perfectly suited to meet all of my spiritual needs before a holy God. Jesus is the rock of my refuge and safety. He's the living stone who takes out my heart of stone and gives it a heart of flesh. Never disappointed in that. So how does that change as we transition here in a moment to the second point? How does that change the way you think about yourself? You see yourself as a living stone. Let me suggest a couple of things that might change. First of all, living stones are contingent. You get your life from Jesus. Are you seeking to draw spiritual life from Jesus in prayer, in, in praise, in confession, in reading his word? Are you constantly asking Jesus to fill your imagination, control your heart by his spirit? Is he the source of your life? Not just thanking him for every breath in your lungs, every beating of your heart, but the very vitality you enjoy because he's caused you to be born again? Are you contingent on Jesus? As a living stone, you need to be carried to be useful. <laughs> Janice and I are doing some yard work at home in our spare time, and we're taking some rocks and moving them over here, and every one of those rocks is useful to us only because we carried it. If you've been useful to the Lord, you've served the Lord, you've been a blessing to other people, you've made a difference, it's ultimately because the Lord carried you. So there's never, ever, ever any room for boasting having done anything fruitful for God. No room for boasting. He carried you. Living stones need to be connected to each other. We're a temple. We're alive. And we're really only as strong as all the living stones are looking to, supporting, encouraging and admonishing, praying for one another. We're bound together, living stones. We belong to each other, <laughs> loving each other, cherishing each other, deferring to each other, honoring each other as more beautiful stones than ourselves. And if you're a living stone, that means you're chiseled in the master's hand for his purposes and his use. There's something very specific, very special for you to do in the church, in your life. I love this phrase the New Testament uses reflecting on David, that he served the purposes of God in his generation. He was a stone chiseled by God for God's purposes in a generation. So are you. Do you know what that is? Do you think about that? Do you pray about that? Do you ask others about that? Don't miss it. God has chiseled you, put you together, gifted you, called you to do something for his glory, for his kingdom, for the upbuilding and edification of the church, for the betterment of our world. What a thrill to be chiseled by the master and to sense, oh, he's placed me in a place of fruitfulness. You need to know what that is. 
That's the first question. Honor for believers. As, as God builds his spiritual house, we're coming to Christ, the living stone. Secondly, here's the heavy part, the weighty part, the sober part. Christ is rejected as the rock of offense, doomed for unbelievers. The more you get to know Jesus, the more you read the Bible, the more you wonder, why doesn't everyone believe this? Particularly, why didn't the Jews of Jesus' day believe this? Well, Peter answers the question in verse 8. It was their heart. They were disobedient. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. They refused to honor God. The fact of history is that most of the Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders, rejected their Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who would deliver them politically from Roman oppression, and they wanted a Messiah who would tell them they're good people. Jesus refused to do either. This is a very sober mystery. On the one hand, they rejected Jesus. They were disobedient. They are completely responsible and culpable for their sin. On the other, this very rejection, Peter says, was predestined by God. God sovereignly determined this rejection. Now you may be wondering, that sounds immensely unfair. They had no choice in the matter. Wrong. They are responsible for their unbelief and their disobedience. And that means that anyone within my earshot right now does not need to think they are doomed if God hasn't willed their salvation. You may come to Christ. You may find Christ. You do not need to stumble over Christ. Christ is calling everyone within my earshot to find life in him, to become a living stone, to trust him. He'll give you the faith. He'll give you the repentance. You're not doomed if you're hearing my words. I want to tease this out a little bit and unpack the stumbling over Jesus. Most of the people that I know in this church find him to be unspeakably kind, loving, a friend. The more you know him, the, more, the less inclined you are to take your eyes off him. So why does anybody stumble over Christ? Let me give you a, a number of reasons. Number one, it, it, it can't be for what Jesus reportedly did. What did he do? He showed mercy to the poor. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast demons out of people. He fed the hungry. Sort of summarize, he set at liberty the oppressed. That's how Jesus fashioned his ministry based on Isaiah 61. In his first sermon in Nazareth, he used this text. Speaking of himself, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's not to like? Secondly, is it a perception? People stumble over Jesus. Is it a perception of what he stood for? I don't know. Didn't Jesus stand for the underdog, for kindness, for social responsibility? 
In fact, his ethics are so compelling that his ethics are borrowed from people with a humanistic worldview, a secular worldview. If you consider yourself materialistic in your worldview, but yet you believe in friendship, you believe in honesty, you believe in responsibility, you believe in justice, those are distinctly concepts from Jesus' worldview. It's impossible to locate friendship in a worldview where all you have is molecules in motion. All you have is molecules. But to desire honesty and friendship and responsibility and fairness and all these things, those are distinct qualities of Jesus' worldview. <laughs> Look, are you anti-religious corruption? So was Jesus. Are you anti-hypocrisy? So was Jesus. Are you moved with compassion for the disadvantaged? So was Jesus. Turned off by formalism? So was Jesus. Repulsed by people just in it for the money? So was Jesus. Offended by abuse to human beings in any form? So was and is Jesus. It's hard to say that it's what he stood for. So thirdly, it must be something else. And I'll just tease out several things that I find in talking to people are frequently things over which, things that make people stumble over Jesus. One, his followers. You may have had a terrible experience with Christians. You never want to darken the door of a church again. Who could blame you? Mahatma Gandhi said this. I am quite taken by Jesus Christ. It is his followers who make me not want to believe in him. All I can say is, to any degree, anyone who says they love Jesus and acts in an offensive way, I would plead with you, if that's keeping you from Jesus, to forgive us, to understand that we are still weak and frail and struggle with sin, and to please look past us to the beauty of Jesus himself. What else causes people to stumble? The providences he permits. What do I mean by that? Well, I run into people from time to time who began in the church and for one reason or another turn their backs on God. They can't keep following Jesus. Jesus let them down. And usually it's something pretty significant. The loss of something very, very precious to them. And so you've reasoned that if God is sovereign and he didn't, he wasn't powerful enough to keep this from me, I no longer want to believe in him. Here's how I would respond to you. If the reason for rejecting God is in fact that he's sovereign and didn't give you in his power what you wanted, trust that same sovereignty works, purposes you may not be understanding. And hear God when he says, I am as sovereign as I am good and merciful and loving. A lot more we could say about that. I'm stunned by the testimony of God-fearing people who, in the face of these kinds of tragedies, nonetheless profess their trust in God. 9-11, almost 20 years ago, Flight 11, American Airlines, went into the World Trade Centers. One of the pilots was Tom McGinnis. His wife was quoted as saying this on the heels of that tragedy. God knows the times and seasons of our life, and I don't need to know everything. In fact, I shouldn't know everything. I just need to move forward trusting God every step of the way. He can be trusted, beloved. And then the last thing that people stumble over are the challenges that come from the mouth of Jesus himself. <laughs> Jesus challenges our morality. 
He came and he said to people, you're not good. Your self-righteousness, your pride, your sense of moral goodness, it's a lie. You're kidding yourself. There's almost a comical situation where Jesus is talking to his disciples in Luke about the goodness of his father and, and his father's commitment to give his children good gifts. And he reasons from the uh, from the lesser to the greater, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much shall God give to you? He calls his own followers evil. To follow Jesus, you need to know. He calls you evil. You need him. You have no righteousness. You're morally bankrupt. To follow Jesus, you must give up all claims to autonomy, personal allegiance. Jesus said, to follow me, you must die. Give up all rights to yourself. This is offensive. This is a stumbling block. We understand why human pride resists giving up the illusion of control. No one's really in control of their lives. But Jesus said, you must follow me. I am Lord of everything. Lord of your money. Lord of your sexuality. Lord of your time. I am Lord of everything. That's offensive to people. It's a stumbling block. One atheist, Aldo Huxley, wrote this in Ends and Means. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning, to believe in God. For myself, the philosophy of meaning this was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexually and polit politically. He was being honest enough to say that from his worldview, there's no God, I have permission to do what I want. And that brings me to the last one. Uh, Jesus challenges your worldview. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes into the Father but, but my me, and other things, he's basically saying the only worldview that makes sense, the only worldview to be believed, is the worldview we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I plan to unpack this in a lot more detail. I realize I don't have the time. If you personally struggle over that, you think that claim to exclusivity is narrow-minded, it's dogmatic, it's intolerant, We'd love to talk more about it. Love to talk more about it. I don't have time in this particular sermon. Let's end on a happier note, as it were, and just talk about this wonderful thing Peter calls believers a holy priesthood in verse 5. A holy priesthood. What were the priests? Well, these are these people. You could only, only be born in the tribe of Levi. You, this wasn't something you took for yourself. You had to be born into it. And the priests were incredibly privileged because they had closest proximity to God, as it were. They served God in the temple. They offered the sacrifices. But even before the priesthood was given, God made it clear he wanted all of his people to be priests. Exodus 19.6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Isaiah 61.6, but you will be called the priests of the Lord. And we see this fulfilled in Revelation 1. Verse 6, he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to God through Jesus Christ. I want to just think as we close the glory of being priests. What is the posture of a priest? Well, in the Old Testament, of course, you have the king. The king uh, mediates the reign of God over the people of God. The prophet stands with his back to God and speaks for God to the people and the priest has the opposite posture. The priest stands with his back to the people and intercedes before God uh, for them. So in a sense, the priest has eyes on the Lord. 
What a privilege and a glory to fix our eyes on Jesus, says the writer of Hebrews, as we run the race of faith. Fix our eyes on Jesus, never fearing rejection. Never think we need to do more to be accepted. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. And you know, the priests, everything they did was meticulously uh, stipulated in the law of God. Therefore, as we look to Jesus, we become more and more careful over our obedience. More and more scrupulous over our thoughts, our words, our behaviors as conforming to Christ's moral glory. And priests interceded on behalf of the people. And so there's no more glorious moving in the wonder of your priesthood than praying. Praying. Jesus has gone before us. The scripture tells us his flesh was the veil torn in the temple to open up to us the holy of holies, give us absolute, unbridled, confident access to the very throne of God. If there's a, a charter of prayer freedom for believers, it's Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Priests, you're constantly praying for help in time of need. You're constantly praying down grace from the throne of grace. You're constantly looking to Christ, celebrating his kingship, celebrating confidently his intercession for you. He's there pleading for you, praying for you, ever living to make intercession for you. This is what priests are aware of. And you take delight interceding for other people. This is a praying church. When I speak to you on the phone and we touch base, particularly in this time of uh, our social isolation and pandemic, you tell me about prayers. You tell me about answered prayers. You pray for me. This is a praying church. The glory of exercising this priesthood, drawing near to the throne of grace, receiving mercy, which we constantly need, <laughs> reminded that Jesus Christ is on that throne he is crowned through the cross, through the suffering of the cross, crowned with glory, receiving mercy, pleading his blood over our sins, reminding ourselves of how much we need the cross, bowing before the cross, being humbled before the cross, and then letting our lips burst with petitions, with prayers, of praise, thanksgiving, confession, and interceding for those who need grace to help in time of need. We're all priests. We're all praying, Lord willing, for each other. Grace in the time of your need. I'll close with the words of John Newton. We sing a song here called, Come my, come my soul, thy suit prepare. And one of the verses in that song uh, says this, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. So let's pray in that spirit. Our king, it's true, we can never ask too much. You reign and rule on your throne of grace. From there you unceasingly lavish grace into our lives, into our hearts. You've given us the grace of being priests unto God. May we then, like Jesus, who ever lives to make intercession for us, be those who are ever praying, ever pleading for grace to those who need help 
in time of need. And that's us. And you'll ever meet our needs. Gracious Savior. Nothing you withhold that is necessary. All things necessary you will give to us. Thank you. And so more and more, unite us together as living stones in this spiritual house, filling us with your spirit, making Christ known, his glories, his word, his presence, his promises, his power through the Holy Spirit. For his glory we pray. Our final hymn is 342, Christ has made the sure foundation.